Hmm. I'm just waiting for our Facebook uh, Live to go live. Um, I want to thank everyone who um, registered and who's on um, right now. We had almost 530 registrations for huh? the Zoom event. And if everybody shows up, we'll be over our capacity. So um, we want to start uh, a Facebook Live, um, which we weren't initially planning on doing, but we wanted to ensure that um, anybody who wanted to uh, observe the conversation and participate um, would be able to. Um, it's really important to us that um, we make sure that this conversation is accessible um, and is open to as many uh, people as, as possible. Um, I really want to thank you all for for being here today. Um, and just before we get into um, uh, the conversation, I would like to ask uh, um, a very respected elder and as well as one of the National Association of Friendship Centers senators, uh, Dominic Rankin, to to open our forum in a good way. Um, Dominic. Yes, thank you, Jocelyn. Um, <clears throat> I am in the France again. So uh, back home uh, two days more, uh, we take our plane to go back home and uh, <clears throat> everything's closed here. Um, I think it's a very, very important for uh, this meeting. I would like to say miigwech to uh, Joyce to open the door to talk uh, to protection for the future generation. Miigwech the naga de bendigit. A kenegegonga minigwok nugum. Joyce Kishimejnan Ugi Higi minigunan maya. And a shina beba madizeni. Kijiminoshinik Koshkim madiziot. Je voudrais remercier Joyce, le Grand Esprit, merci de nous envoyer les paroles de Joyce pour protéger pour le futur les femmes et méritent leur place sur cette terre. C'est leur terre. On doit tout. We owe everything to women today. And interpreter apologizes, the speaker has uh, frozen up. Uh, please stand by, we are having uh, apparently technical difficulties. Uh, interpreter cannot uh, continue interpretation as there seems to be communication problems. Dominic, you're frozen. Okay. We've lost our elder. <laughs> um, when, if we see him come back on, we'll we'll invite him back to uh, 
to to give to complete his opening. Um, anytime we have the opportunity to hear from. Oh, there he is. Welcome back. <laughs> Dominic, we lost you for a couple minutes. Oh, sorry. Uh, I said uh, to Jennifer Brazo, Director uh, Juliet, thanks. Everything what you do. It's dramatic for everyone, and thank you to be there. I give you my support. Everything that you do, thank you to be there, Jennifer. Have a good meeting. Miigwech. Yeah. Miigwech, Dominic. Uh. Uh, I would really like to thank everybody who who came on board. Um, we have just about um, just over three hundred participants right now. Um, our max uh, for our webinar is 500 and so um, we're really just honored that everybody um, feels there's value in this conversation um, and we really do want to feel make it feel like it is a conversation so I've seen our chat box has been very active um, people agree, giving greetings from all across uh, the country um, and we've had quite the variety of uh, people um, registering and, and wanting to be part of this. So um, I'll just say that right off the bat, like we want to do this live event, but we also want to um, write up a, a written piece following. So um, it's important from what we hear from our panelists, but just as important as what we hear from you. So we really do encourage you to respond to what you're hearing in the chat box, to add your own perspectives, to add your experiences, and to, um, to share your, your thoughts, your recommendations, especially about what we need to be doing collectively as a society, um, perhaps some um, recommendations of what we think federal government should be doing or any level of governments. Um, and, and we'll be wrapping up those recommendations, those experiences, um, what people are sharing with us, and we're going to try to incorporate into that final report. Um, we're going to be sharing that report with the federal government um, and any of our partners to say, you know, if we want to look at really making some real actions in addressing systemic and institutional racism um, within the healthcare system, this is where we're starting. So just to give you a broad overview, um, and of course, as you're using the chat function, like in, you know, if we're meeting in person, that we would expect that same respect from one another, um, um, how we're treating each other, the words that we're using. And so we just ask that you keep that language respectful um, as though we are meeting in an in-person um, capacity. Um, we may or may not, I would say that we probably won't have enough time to do a formal Q&A at the end. Um, so what I will encourage everyone to do is use the question and answer function within uh, Zoom itself. So there is a Q&A button at the bottom. So if you want to ask your questions, um, we'll try to incorporate them into the comments and I'll try to maybe ask some of those prompts um, for the panelists um, as we go along. So um, definitely, um, if you have questions, um, please, that, that'll be the mechanism that we will use as well. Um, 
So myself, my name is Jocelyn Formsma. I am the Executive Director of the National Association of Friendship Center, Wache Misue, Shwebanish, Nishinakasun, Muskri, Natosjin. I am originally from Northern Ontario, and I've uh, been living and working in Ottawa and unceded Algonquin Territory for a uh, number of years. I tried to leave and then uh, I, I came back. <laughs> um, uh, we have with us today a very esteemed uh, panel, um, folks that I personally look to as mentors and as colleagues um, that I hold in very high respect. Um, Senator Yvonne, Yvonne Boyer uh, from the Senate of Canada, who is um, you know, one of the authorities on Indigenous health law, um, if not the authority. <laughs> um, Métis from, uh, from the Métis homelands. Um, we have Jennifer Brazo, who's the executive director of the Lanao Dier Friendship Center in Quebec. Um, she's been heavily involved with a lot of work in Quebec, um, formerly in Quebec Native Women's. Uh, she's also a board member of the National Association of Friendship Centers and has been on the front line of um, this work for, for a very long time, but especially with um, Joyce Eshaquan's family. Um, we have Edith Cloutier, um, an esteemed member of the Order of Canada, the executive director of Valdor for many years. Uh, she is also our national secretary at the NEFC um, and has also run a, a health clinic out of her Friendship Center for over 10 years. Um, Dr. Alika LaFontaine, a physician who's currently working in Northern Alberta um, and has a long history of, in his career, um, looking at the systemic racism issue, yeah. racism issues. And of course, Dr. Janet Smiley, who's um, been working in this field of public health and frontline uh, health service delivery for more than 20 years and um, knows the urban landscape uh, for Indigenous people very well and uh, collectively um, we want to provide an overview of what we see is happening on the ground, some examples of some community-driven solutions, um, some ideas of where we think we can go, but more importantly the recommendations and the action items that we see coming out of this. Um, I know for myself um, on September 29th, I took a call from Jennifer Brazo and she was telling me about um, what she was experiencing in her staff and the community um, in Joliet. Um, and it was that afternoon that the news had broken and was all over um, everywhere, social media, uh, folks from all across the country were responding. Um, and I think that that experience um, for any Indigenous person that watched and that heard about what happened with Joyce um, hit very close to home for most of us, if not all of us. I think most of us, if not all of us, have an experience where in some of our most vulnerable moments when we reached out for support and help that we were met or had to fight for what we felt was right within a healthcare setting. We turned to people that we thought should be able to help us in a way with dignity and respect and um, did not have those experiences in the healthcare system. This was probably um, one of those situations that, that we hope will be a watershed moment um, that we can look back in 20 years and say, this is really when things started to change for the better, that we did something and we did it 
um, in a way that um, really meant something and, and changed things for good. Um, we know of these stories, they happen all over the place, but I'm hoping that um, with this moment that we have where the awareness has been heightened, people are hearing about it and, and coming together um, in that solidarity that we this is not right and that it shouldn't happen again. Um, we wanted to ensure that there was that voice from the urban perspective, um, not to silence or diminish or usurp anybody else's voice, but um, as friendship centers, we work in these communities every day. We work with these community members. We are called to hospitals and hospices. We are called to help people in, in comfort and palliative care. We are called to long-term care facilities, um, families. Um, we hold people's hands and, and we make sure they get to their appointments. And um, there is a lot that we play in this role. Um, and there's a big piece that um, needs to be heard from, from that urban perspective. And so we wanted to host this forum to share that voice. Um, and from each of you who are listening in, um, we hope that you will also share your voices in that space. And um, collectively, uh, we can put forward something that we feel will really be effective within, um, within the urban spaces for Indigenous people. So with that, um, I just, uh, I want to turn it over to uh, who we all tuned in to hear which is our panelists. Um, so again, I'll just mention, we do hope to write um, something written. Um, so just keep that in mind um, that as you're adding your voice in the chat, um, it's possible we may be using some of that in the report. Um, if there is something that you don't want us to use or not use your name, um, you can email us afterwards. We're gonna send an email out to all of the participants um, and you can, you can let us know then. Um, but otherwise, um, please know that your words may may end up in that report. Um, we're also hoping, um, and we don't intend for this to be a single event, but um, a, a, a forum that starts um, the conversation at this level, um, and that we as the NEFC are committed to seeing through um, the actions that we feel are necessary to um, till the end, um, so that Joyce Eshaquan's family feels that there is justice, that we are shifting the tides across the country towards, um, towards a more equitable um, and dignified healthcare system. Um, we know that a lot of people work hard in those systems and there are good people and we hope that people don't view it as a personal attack on any individual, but we are looking at it from a systems level and the harm that has been done to too many people. Um, and if there are individuals who are part of that system that are, shouldn't be there, then I think those are some of the conversations that we're looking to try to trigger um, within those systems. So with that, um, I turn to our first panelist um, and I would like to ask Jennifer Brazo, um, if you could just help frame some of the experience from your perspective that you've been there since before day one, and, and what has that experience been like for you and um, anything that you'd like to share with, uh, with the now over almost 400 um, participants here and those who will be listening and, and watching afterwards. Okay, everybody. Um, <clears throat> I wanna thank everybody for showing an interest and participating too. And thank you, Dominic, for your opening. It's much appreciated. 
Um, I can say it's been, uh, the event was a shocking event, I guess, for everybody. And um, considering that the event happened in Joliet and we were a little bit at the center of uh, the development of all these, this, this coming out, it, it's almost hard to explain what, how it was experienced here live because it's such a traumatic event and it's traumatic on multiple levels. Um, as Indigenous people, uh, we often share stories and talk about the injustices that we live. Uh, and as a director, you're always trying to respond to those needs. Um, and I can say that we were, we were sitting in a staff meeting actually, we we're trying to plan our activities for the week and see what was happening. And we could see the live feed uh, being sent around, the video being sent around on Facebook. Um, and what's doubly upsetting is that uh, we had members of her family, cousins that work at our center. Um, so it was, it was quite an experience to be able to sit there and to try to figure out how we can come to help. We had about half our team that took off to the hospital to try to see if there was something that they can do. Um, the rest of us here, I, I listened to that video to just in disbelief of um, what was being said to Joyce. Um, and then from there, you know, being the Friendship Center in Joliet, uh, we ended up having to work towards trying to manage the crisis for the community members on the ground, supporting the family when they came down, um, managing the, you know, all the other emotions too that come up because what happened was when something that traumatic is happening, uh, it of course causes a bunch of trauma in the community that we have to afterwards work with. And now we're working in a space where we need to start to look to how we can manage the aftermath of everything that happened and support the community who have incredible needs uh, when it comes to health services and a huge distress that was already there that has just been amplified, um, get the services that they need. Um, for us, what we're gonna keep trying to do is try to respond to the needs that are on the ground, to try to be as pragmatic as uh, opening up our, our little clinic that we needed to open. Um, we were trying to work before with the health services and the health network here. I had meetings in June already before this event had started to try to open up a proximity clinic and get resources because we know that this is a long-standing problem uh, in, that our community members face. And it's something that was already outlined in a commission that was done provincially. Uh, and we had also many different community members that testified at that commission. And what was, what's incredibly frustrating is that it, it's something that's so globally known, but concrete actions haven't been taken to really try to stem this. So um, having listened to Joyce's cries for help, which still play in my head today, um, and what she asked, what the family has been asking for is justice. And I think part of that is, keeping people accountable in the system where this event could have 
trans how this could have been transpired and to make sure that uh, we're ensuring that people have um, spaces where they can feel comfortable and to access services. Our little clinic, it's just two afternoons a month. We still don't have the support from the network to be able to have a nurse or have equipment, uh, but at least it's one access space where people can come and start to get the basic needs that they, they need taken care of. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, that really kind of helps us, you know, show um, the frontline response. Um, I mean, it was in this case, it was the Friendship Center, and a lot of Friendship Centers play that role. Um, so we wanted to start with like grounding it in that local experience. Um, it's it's something that I know really resonated across the country um, for the response that we've seen, um, and I think a lot of folks immediately said. Um, like this isn't the first time um, and it's certainly not uh, something that um, is new. And, and so I was wondering if Senator Yvonne Boyer, um, if you could kind of maybe give us some of the larger um, picture uh, nationally um, from your perspective as someone who's worked in this area for many, many years, um, uh, what's your experience been with, with some of those similar matters and um, if there's anything that you'd like to share with us from your experience in working in Indigenous health law. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jocelyn, and thank you, Jennifer, for uh, grounding us in what's happening in Joliet. And I, um, I, I want to say that in the last few weeks, I've had a few interviews, and one of them, one journalist asked me for an example of somebody experiencing racism in the healthcare system, and I said, hmm, wait a minute, let's turn that around. Has anybody that I know ever had a good experience in the healthcare system? And there has been no Indigenous people that have ever come to me that have said they've had a positive experience. So that kind of grounds things for what we're talking about today. And it, um, one area that I do want to talk about is forced sterilization and I want to sort of explain to you how long it's been going on in my in my experience and what I've seen. So I'm going to take you back and I'm going to introduce you to my Aunt Lucy. My Aunt Lucy is Lucille Bernadette Boyer and she spent 10 years in a tuberculosis sanatorium. She was in Fort Quipel. Five of those years were in a body cast. When I stayed with her and I was, I had my bedtime stories for about what was life like in a tuberculosis sanatorium for a little Chippewa girl, a teeny tiny little girl in a starched white bed and that was so sick. And sometimes she talked to me about the monsters that walked the halls. She called them wowies. And the, the monsters that walked the halls were in the form of humans and they were racist and they were mean and some of them were sexual abusers but this was her life and she had some bad experiences there and that sort of set the tone for me and when I finished high school I went into nursing and as I was expected to and I saw for myself what was going on in the hospital system and people were saying things to me probably because of the way I look they were 
thinking that I was their confidant or they felt comfortable enough to me with me to say things like those Indian women just need to be sterilized and that'll solve all the problems. And that I heard on more than one occasion in the nursing profession. So as the years went on, I started to get real upset with what I was seeing and hearing and I thought I either have to shut up and accept it or start looking at getting some tools. And that's when I started thinking about going to law school. And I, um, I did, I, I picked up, I, I managed to get into law school. That's a whole other story we won't get into. But um, during my academic career, I started investigating eugenics because my aunt had never had children. She was sterile. And I don't know if she was sterilized when she was in the tuberculosis sanatorium because her records have been destroyed. I suspect she was, and I suspect there were many others that were as well. So I think that um, the issue of forced and coerced sterilization has been going on a lot longer than anybody knows. We have eugenics legislation that was enacted in BC and Alberta, and these this and it was um, on the floor in Saskatchewan as well. And I believe that these this type of legislation underpins our policies that we have today, our health policies that we have in place today. But I'm going to fast forward a number of years, and um, as I'm a lawyer and or, a, or I'm working at the university. Betty Ann Adam from the Star Phoenix gave me a call and said, hey, Vaughn, we have, I have two women here who say that they were sterilized against their will in a Saskatoon hospital. And I said, what? How can that happen? And she said, well, yes, these are Indigenous women. And they had said no. And they were sterilized against their will. And I said, well, from a legal perspective, this is this is a criminal act. You can't go around sterilizing people. We've got Aboriginal rights. This this not only it's there's negligence. We've got medical law. We've got criminal law. We've got Aboriginal law. We've got international law. And and I'm just like saying this just can't happen. And the two women, the two brave women that came forward first was Tracy Benab and Brenda Pelche. And I say their names with the utmost of respect. And they came forward and said, talked about their forced sterilization. After those two came forward, two more came forward, and then two more, and then five more, and then 10 more. So then we started to have like, what's going on? The, at that point, the Saskatoon Health Authority called me and said, I would, we would like you to do an external review on our tube and I said are you sure because I've been like saying I've been giving lots of interviews about what you're doing wrong and uh, basically they said the elders have asked for you so at that point I said yes I will do it and uh, together Dr. Judy Bartlett and I embarked on the report that uh, came out in 2017 where we interviewed Indigenous women and um, and it was the beginning or laid the groundwork for the class action that is currently happening in Saskatchewan where I believe there's about a hundred women that have joined the class action lawsuit. My office in Ottawa has become a clearinghouse for people to 
sterilization, and other issues of consent uh, or lack of consent in the healthcare system. So I know that this is happening not just in Saskatchewan. I know there's a high population of Indigenous people. And I know it's happening. I've had calls from Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, Nova Scotia, the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. So we know it's spread out across the country. And we know that many of these issues are are not reported and many of them are not even joining the class action lawsuit but we know that there needs to be something on the ground that is is going to help teach women that it's okay to say no because sometimes women it's the powerful and the powerlessness and sometimes the women need to be able to know what their rights are know that they can say no and they have to be listened to but I'll talk about that when we get to the recommendations. Uh, now I just briefly want to talk a little bit more about what's happening. Um, what we're doing right now at the Senate is in the 42nd Parliament, we were able to put together a, a, um, a short study on the forced and coerced sterilization of Indigenous women, where we had some fantastic uh, testimony come in. And now that we're starting our 43rd Parliament, we are looking at um, in doing another another and additional and building on the first one and uh, looking at um, really bringing uh, more of a, an international focus to what's happening. So basically um, that's, that's where we're at and um, I appreciate everybody that's here and I know that many of you that are watching have similar stories to what I'm talking about and um, I really, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and I look forward to your input in this report that uh, Jocelyn and her crew are gonna be putting together. So thank you, thank you to all of you. Thank you so much, Senator Boyer. And um, we just really appreciate you lending your, your voice and your support to this work and you've been a wonderful um, friend and ally to, to us in ensuring that those voices are, are heard. Um, in, in the work that's happening on Parliament Hill and, and especially within the Senate. Um, so really appreciate you giving kind of like that broad overview and how long um, we've, we've had systemic and institutional racism in, in the healthcare system. And um, some may even argue that, there, that it, was, it was part of a foundation upon which it was built. Um, and there's been the, um, systemic disruption and removal of indigenous ways of knowing and being um, and, and healing and being healthy. Um, and I think some of the best examples uh, that we've seen where our people have been treated with dig dignity and respect um, are situations where we've taken control and we've done it for ourselves. Um, and I'd like to turn now to um, Edith Cliche and Dr. Janet Smiley um, to share about their experiences and seeing those community-driven examples of um, how Indigenous people have taken healthcare into their own hands and, and how that has worked out. So maybe Edith, if I could just uh, start with you and, and talk a little bit more about um, you know, how your clinic at the Friendship Center came to be um, and um, what has that meant for health uh, of people in, in Val d'Or and, and the, the surrounding communities? 
Quay, uh, Miigwech, thank you. Uh, I'm going to be doing this presentation in French, but I do have a PowerPoint in English. So, je vais tenter de so I will try to share my screen. Do you want me to begin and do I do I need to share the from my computer? Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Merci. Alors. Um, Merci d'être au rendez-vous si nombreux. For uh, uh, being here, so many of you, and thank you for the National Association of Native Friendship Centers for this important initiative. I have the pleasure to present to you concretely the Gavin guidelines and have a major uh, initiative for social innovation that is supported uh, by the Valdor Friendship Center and also the Antiquated Center of. Uh, Social Health and Social Services of Abitibi-Sibiscamingue, which is a Quebec government uh, institution. And also, the WIN is an initiative of well-being and holistic uh, health for Indigenous peoples, which is an innovative uh, response, a reply to renewing the uh, health and social services, and also to in increase uh, accessibility. Uh, these services to establish uh, well-being and uh, improve the uh, living conditions of uh, urban natives, urban indigenous people. You know, Zawin evokes the uh, process for uh, cultural the security of uh, the Friendship Center of Valdor. This word means the overall state of harmony and well-being and balance in English we say living a good life. So this process that enters into the actions of the Friendship Center seeks to position uh, Indigenous people as a first forest, uh, primary actors in this new range of services. Their service contexts such as medical services as well, they will restore services in uh, for indigenous healing practices also it also seeks to restore the relationship of indigenous people with the quebec network of health and social services through improved trust we understood we have to re-establish trust that has been broken we also want to counter uh, well reduce uh, gaps and disparities in health and uh, social services and social inequalities and these services, uh, the differences in these services between indigenous people and the Canadians. The Minoe Clinic is a component of Mimo Dizuin, and this clinic uh, contributes to, uh, is an effort to improve the health and living conditions of indigenous people. Forward by the uh, Valdor Friendship Center, and this clinic allows indigenous people to uh, receive care in respect of their values and traditions, but also for indigenous people who would work and contribute through the sharing of their knowledge and their indigenous skills. Uh, I mentioned that it's been over 10 years that the Friendship Center has been working to set up this clinic. And this clinic, what we have to emphasize that is that the spirit of this clinic built like an innovative reply to renew what I mentioned, the 
service offer, but also to build the trust or confidence of indigenous people towards the system. So through this implementation, we want to act directly on the system. So we will continue a vision of systemic transformation that it will be an interface, will be a sort of a new sort of space for co-construction and exchange between a native friendship center and a government uh, authority, a gov uh, government health authority. And what's also brought into this uh, space, in this space and this uh, interface, is that research partners are also present and also the federal government, which also contributes uh, uh, financially for one part of it. So clinic provides uh, uh, doctor services and uh, a practicing uh, nurse and an obstetrician, a psychologist as well, who are added to a team of people who are already uh, working at the Friendship Center. So, this, so we have social workers, community organizers, uh, cultural activity leaders, uh, educators as well, uh, daycare workers as well, and other professionals who work in a Friendship Center. So I'll also talk to you uh, quickly about the challenges that we encountered over the last 10 years in the co-governance. And I will summarize this quickly. One of the challenges is uh, to maintain active participation in decision-making, namely when we talk about the services to offer and the policies to be elaborated and the programs to design and also practices that combine a classic medical practice with a cultural and traditional healing practice. Another uh, challenge is to maintain the partnership relationship that is a key to success of this initiative goes through the active involvement of the uh, uh, the uh, senior, uh, yeah, the, the higher echelons as well uh, in uh, the civil service. So it's been over 10 years, this clinic has been operating, but it has been without, it's been operating without recurrent funding. It has been a one-time funding, but even 10 years later, the, 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 the still underfunded and the funding is not, uh, does not come in as it should. So also there is the, uh, continue, so we are lacking continuous and sustainable funding. Also, there's the sharing of learnings. This can allow us to bring out our activities uh, to, and uh, to have them be known to all of the decision-making level. We have to uh, uh, consider the collective and individual needs to uh, remain grounded in the community for the community's needs and for the community. Another challenge concerns the complementarity of uh, skills or competency, it, it, which goes through the recognition of shared expertise, namely uh, for the traditional knowledge and the indigenous teachings which uh, coexist with expertise and medical expertise and other skills and practitioners in the clinic uh, of uh, the practices of non-native uh, caregivers. So it's important in this initiative is the role of research and evaluation. Since the beginning of the initiative, uh, 10 years ago, we included uh, a scientific uh, a pro uh, project with researchers uh, that contribute. We have a monitoring program and to, uh, to document the uh, such a, a innovative development and also have an, uh, an assessment uh, and follow-up. 
in real time, we talk about Minoway and Minobezwin, is a cultural uh, safety approach. One of our challenges is to propose this initiative like a uh, paradigm shift to replace what we call the uh, indigenous exception within a society. So we want to make Minobezwin is the component of the clinic to make this a social project that is uh, based on social innovation and a, and a community service offer for indigenous peoples. Another challenge is identity and community uh, recognition. Is a, is a manifestation of indigenous agency. So it is. It uh, seeks a takeover of our own destiny as people, uh, as a society, as First Nations. And I'll just conclude quickly. A contribution to reconciliation and decolonization, because the uh, clinic's approach clearly shows a, a meaningful uh, manifestation of the reconciliation desired uh, by a Canadian society with the Indigenous people and the. You know, Nick brings an innovative and and broad approach to this, all the calls for action which were formulated by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The clinic would definitively uh, contribute to modifying uh, in the unequal uh, power relations that show the uh, relationship, uh, that mark the relationship between uh, the state and uh, indigenous people. So uh, is committing itself to on this road to decolonization. So. Finally, where are we 10 years later? Uh, Jennifer mentioned at the beginning, there was a an inquiry, a commission of inquiry uh, between relations of uh, certain public services. It was called the Vienne Commission, as public services and indigenous people. So the, also the urgency of, uh, there were showed that there was systemic uh, racism in uh, within the services offered by the Quebec state. The findings of this commission, combined with the tragic death of uh, Joyce Chaquan, uh, under uh, underscore the urgency of having health clinics for and by Indigenous uh, people. Now we have these Valdor, Joliet, and also in uh, the Friendship Center in Nutsik. But once more, these clinics have to be recognized and funded by governments. Because as as I mentioned, for ten years uh, the Minoway uh, Clinic has evolved, but without ever having been officially registered in the Quebec Public Service offer for Indigenous people, so it's an initiative. It's been built in the shadows. It's a clinic that is a remain is on uh, its own. Uh, it seems to be invisible in the public service offer in Quebec. It is not recognized so with the report there of uh, commissioner vien said the uh, paper one year ago there was a call to action 96 which encourages establishments of the health and social services networks and i quote to establish a, a service inspired by the minoway clinic in in uh, urban and areas but without uh, recurrent dating and uh, the Quebec government and jurisdiction uh, on, on health as well uh, in the uh, cities. Well, it's a very, it's very hard to uh, 
to advance with this funding. So even though they have been under the radar or invisible to many, these clinics and those that are others that are under develop, uh, development must, must enter a, into a public service offer while conserving their capacity to um, institutions, authorities, and indigenous leaders uh, to maintain their uh, full authority and governance of such a clinic. So I'll stop here for the time being and uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Edith. Um, this is like, you know, um, 15 years ago when you had this vision and, and to be able to actually pull it together um, and, and be operating successfully for, for over 10 years now. I think it's a great example of how, um, you know, there are community-driven solutions um, and that can work with persistence and with leadership and, and vision. So appreciate, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, just to note, um, there have been, it's very active in the chat. I mean, this is amazing, um, wonderful. Um, been taking notes throughout and of course we'll be sharing um, We'll be saving saving the chat for for anything that folks want to say or reflections. Um, in terms, there is a question about using the comments, and and um, certainly we hope that um, people are responding to each other. That there's a there's a live and active um, uh, you know conversation happening there, and and that the words of the panelists are sparking um, some of those thoughts and ideas. Um, so really appreciate the the activity, the high activity on the chat. It's really really great to see, and um, the the questions and answers are are also very um, very thoughtful. And there's there's a lot here, um, and so we've been trying to answer uh, as many as we can as as we're uh, going through. But just thank you so much, everyone, for for so engaging so deeply um, in this conversation. And I will ask uh, my dear friend, Dr. Janet Smiley, to, to share some of her perspectives on um, some of those community-driven solutions and, and her perspectives on um, the work that she's been doing for many, many years. Janet, I think you're on mute. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah, okay, great. Thanks, Alika. Um, so I just want to um, say how grateful I am to um, be able to share a couple words um, and humbled by the company, thankful to Elder Dominique um, and Jocelyn and her awesome team humbled by the uh, colleagues on the panel um, and uh, just, of course, very appreciative um, that this is um, grounded um, in um, the memory like of, of Joyce, um, but also um, the memories of all of our relatives and relations um, and the fact that very few of us um, actually um, can talk about good experiences um, using non-Indigenous health services. And in fact, I had a horrible experience in emergency room with my own spouse just two weeks ago. And if that happens to me as a senior physician, um, yeah, it's uh, like I understand and, and uh, 
um, yeah, that uh, I have a lot of mitigating privilege there. Um, I was um, inspired um, by um, Senator Boyer to put up a little picture. I loved her storytelling. My job, um, which is a tricky job, is try to build on um, what we've heard from uh, Edith already um, about uh, what can happen when Indigenous people, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people take charge of their health services. Um, so I wanted to share this picture of me um, that dates back, I think, to 1996, um, when um, I actually got to go to Anishinaabe Health Toronto for the first time in 1991, um, when I was still in medical school. So I felt very lucky to have that opportunity. Um, and that little baby um, is now full-grown woman. She has given me permission to use this uh, photo, um, and she has babies of her own as well. Okay, so I'm just going to try to advance the slides here. I don't know why that isn't working. Oh, good. Okay, so I wanted to just talk then about, so we've already heard um, from Edith kind of some of the details, but I think um, when I was trying to think, okay, what are some examples um, that I could share and in some ways, I've been very fortunate because I've been on this wave of revitalization. But the first thing that I wanted to say when we talked about like uh, by and for Indigenous community health services um, is just the answers do lie in our communities. And I truly believe that, right? And if um, it's such a huge investment, and I saw a lot of the chat talking about like how hard a problem it is, right, to transform non-Indigenous health systems. And you'll see in a minute, I believe strongly that we need to do that. Um, but of course, we have inherent rights as First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. We've always had our own health systems. And like Senator Boyer, um, in my medical training, um, people would confide in me um, because of my fairer skin and the fact that they just didn't assume there would be any Métis people. I was going to um, school in Ontario. I'm a uh, third generation uh, half-breed with uh, roots in the prairies, but of course my mom, one of the very few Métis nurses of her generation, came to Toronto um, where she worked as a nurse. Um, so uh, Anishinaabe Health Toronto then being the um, oldest example I know of an urban Indigenous health service um, opening up in the um, 1980s, so one always has to be careful, um, like uh, that's in a building in a city, because of course um, we've always had our own health services and systems and they get overlooked. And of course this was the thing that struck me as a very young Métis physician was how inefficient it was to not actually build on um, what I thought was common sense or just ways that I had um, learn to think about things um, through my um, maternal kin line, um, which is along Métis kin line, so from my mom and sister and uh, aunties and grandma. Um, what we had also in Ontario, um, like uh, through the 1990s, was this amazing Aboriginal healing and wellness strategy, um, which was pioneered um, by Friendship Centre movement. Um, so. Uh, um, Sylvia Miracle, um, like uh, taking a leadership role with many, many others. And as a result of that, here in Ontario, we actually have um, multiple um, Indigenous health access centres across um, 
the northern and the southern part of the province. Um, so in Anishinaabe, Muskiki, I put that up because um, I just did a press release with them earlier this week. We've been doing some health assessment work with them. Um, but there's a map. So we actually have in Ontario now the Indigenous Primary Health Care Council. And then some people on the call are working um, across the province. We've heard from Edith about her centre. Um, and we also have um, centres in Winnipeg, Vancouver, uh, many, many centres. So um, I think it's important to acknowledge the work. And the reason why these centres, I think, are good models um, is because they actually build on Indigenous community strengths. So one of the amazing things I love about being a Métis woman um, working in a diverse First Nations Inuit and Métis um, and international Indigenous population here in Toronto, 70,000 strong, is just how persistent our social networks are, our kin networks, and how um, like uh, we are nimbly able to um, build them and rebuild them. So despite 500 years of attempts to disrupt them colonially, they're alive and, and well, and we can demonstrate that. One of my most favorite um, health, Indigenous Health Service examples actually is the Toronto Birth Centre, and you'll see some pictures here. Um, and because of my interest um, in um, early life, um, of course, I spent my first 10 years of clinical practice um, attending births as a family doc um, and uh, have been involved um, in uh, I'm trying to support as best I can the revitalization of Indigenous midwifery, which is one of my favorite models that whole um, and thinking about the extended role. So the story of the Toronto Birth Centre um, is that it actually has an Indigenous governance model. So um, during the early part of the Wynn government here in Ontario, um, there was problems um, with too much cesarean section. So biomedical, unnecessary biomedical interventions in Toronto, that was not evidence-based. So they decided that they would fund birthing centers. So it wasn't meant to be an indigenous governed birthing center. And in fact, the premier told us at a press conference, when I asked him, I said, well, what about an indigenous birthing center? And he said, well, there already is one, right? And that'll get to my final point because we have to be a bit careful. Right, like so Toronto has like uh, 300,000 plus Indigenous people. So what, we're all going to have like one birthing centre, right, um, at Six Nations. So anyways, the reason why I like this um, Toronto Birth Centre is actually an Indigenous model you can see in the room. Um, so it was led by seventh generation midwives, which is an Indigenous and allied um, midwifery practice. But it serves everybody, right? So that's actually just showing that not only can we create better services for our own communities, um, we can innovate um, for um, mainstream, right? Uh, so I wanted to share that example. Um, finally, um, I just wanted to talk about, we need to have um, by community for community services, not only because it's aligned with domestic and international law, Right, not only because it's consistent with the recommendations of the, the calls to action of the TRC um, and uh, the calls to justice um, for um, the uh, inquiry, national inquiry on uh, missing and murdered Indigenous um, women, girls, and two spirit people, but because it's more effective. And I think I kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier on. 
we have so much strengths, like the strengths of social networks, right? We've always um, been responsive. I think, um, I think that there's a lot of um, COVID happening in cities and First Nations, Inuit um, and Métis populations that um, our um, health information system isn't picking up. But I think that you know, some of the early successes we saw in the second wave is because we're really good at public health, right? Um, but we all have our limits, right? And that's partly because many of us have been raised. Um, I mean, I, I aspire to actually remember that I'm part of a family and community, right? So, you know, what I do every day um, and at the end of the day um, should be um, framed by how did I help everybody? Yeah, not how did Janet Smiley do today? So anyways, for those of you who, one of the problems my job, like in the research domain really is to try to work um, with integrity, with the very generous First Nations, Inuit, Métis, Indigenous um, community and organizational partners that I've had the privilege to work with, to actually just say in ways that outside people will believe it because they don't listen, right? Because of epistemic racism, what the community already knows. So we already know if there's community buy-in, right? Um, then the service is gonna be better and more effective for us. So it's not only because there's a legal and moral imperative, it's actually because it works better. The last thing though, is one of the risks um, is if we just push for our own indigenous specific models. Um, and this is a bit of a busy slide but on the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see a building, right? And I'd like to show this building. Um, when we have more interactive sessions, I'll ask people, do they know what that building is, right? So that building is an old TB senator. And we heard from Senator Boye about, um, you know, her auntie that lived in the TB senator. Many of us have relatives, older elders, um, people in our kin lines that spent their childhood in these TB senators. That TB sanatorium became the hospital for First Nations people in Sioux Lookout. So when I was a young medical student, I went to Sioux Lookout and I discovered there was an apartheid healthcare system in Canada, right? And I think it's really important, even though now we have a hospital that does serve both the First Nations from rural and remote areas of Northwestern Ontario, um, as well as the people in the town. When I went there, there was two hospitals. There was the town hospital for the mostly settler, white settler population that lived in the town. And then there was this old dilapidated building with this tragic history that was for the First Nations people. And that was less than 10 years ago. So we have to be a bit careful um, because this can happen in healthcare. The other thing is just we're continuing to build um, like our First Nations Inuit Métis health workforce. Um, and I have big aspirations. I would love to see us run our own Indigenous um, urgent care centre in Toronto that could um, take people um, like uh, who are having urgent health conditions so they could avoid the horrible St. Mike's Emerge, um, which I saw people were commenting on already in the chat, um, which is uh, the hospital that I'm affiliated with in Toronto um, and terribly problematic. Um, but uh, when I was um, providing some uh, input into the second part of the Brian, Inks, uh, Brian Sinclair's um, inquest, um, I did share some information because in Melbourne, Australia, the Indigenous Health Centre that actually started 
um, in abandoned buildings, they now have their own urgent care centers. So that's something to think about. But I guess the point on this slide is I don't think it should be one or the other. I think we also have to, because the hospitals still have the lion's share of the resources, and I'm looking forward to um, hearing from my colleague, Dr. Lafontaine, because he has some great ideas about how hospitals have to be made accountable. Um, and one of the places I first learned this concept when I was um, exposed to the health system in New Zealand, where they clearly have Maori specific health strategies and systems and providers that are funded, core funded, um, but then um, the non-Maori service providers, hospitals, centers actually have to show evidence that they're providing culturally safe access to Maori. So my fear is to do otherwise than like advocate for both is um, to per risk perpetuating the second class treatment in this apartheid kind of system that we had. And then the last thing that I just wanted to share here is a beautiful picture um, of all the amazing uh, First Nations and uh, Métis leaders that work at Women's College Hospital. So there's um, a, a new Center for Wise Practices um, and they've looked very carefully and, and this is a hospital in Toronto that's making a commitment um, and dedicating resources um, and having Indigenous leads that are reporting directly to the board of the hospital um, to make some change. Um, so that was what I was hoping to share um, in this part of the seminar. Thank you so much, Janet. Really appreciate um, you know that reminder that we've been doing this forever, um, and the fact that we haven't lately is is results of many types of disruption over over generations. And a lot of us, what we're trying to do is is reclaim that as opposed to creating something new. Um, so we've talked a little bit about like some examples on the ground and we've gotten some really great response on the chat. And I just, again, wanna thank everybody for being so active and sharing your perspectives and examples and resources and links. Um, all of that is, is amazing and, and it's really, really helpful um, to get us a sense of um, where we're at and where we need to go. And uh, we asked Dr. LaFontaine to come on um, to share a little bit about um, a, a new initiative um, that we're hoping to um, start with a pilot and then expand a bit broader. Um, so Dr. LaFontaine, if you wanted to speak to your Safe Space project and um, kind of what brought you uh, to that and, and what you're hoping to do with it. Sure, absolutely. Um, it's an honor to be in this list of panelists. I, I've learned from all of you as I've gone through my medical training and now that we're all innovating in different areas together, it's, it's really um, reassuring that we're all kind of coming to the same places when it comes to where we have to have impact for patients. Um, I think for Indigenous peoples that go through the medical care system, um, you know, at the, at the beginning when Joyce's family's desires were first talked about, uh, they talked about the need for justice. But I'm going to add to that something that I think shouldn't have to be said, but we do have to say out loud. Patients just don't want to be harmed anymore. Patients want to come to a medical encounter and have a good relationship with their provider. They don't want to have to depend on layers between them in order to have persons who have power to give them space to make sure that their, their care is 
is centered on them, that they get directed, they get to make choices. Um, you know, every time that I think about forced sterilizations, I, I wonder how many of those was I a part of during my training all those years ago. You know, I, I remember having moms awake and asking to hold my hand as they had their anesthetic for a C-section. And around the time that they started the tubal ligation, they'd start to cry. And I'd always think, you know, is my, my anesthetic not working properly? Is it not covering their pain? And looking back, I just never considered that they may not have actually had an informed conversation with their surgeon about whether or not they actually wanted to be sterilized. And I think in Indigenous health in particular, there's a lot of abnormal norms that we've created. You know, it's normal for a physician to yell at an Indigenous patient. It's normal for a nurse to blame an Indigenous patient for the problems they come to the hospital with. And it's changing these norms that I think are going to affect change across the healthcare system, not just in the systems that we create, but also the systems that we, we have to engage with each and every day. I'll share a little bit about me just uh, in the first slide here. This is a picture with my mom, actually. And uh, I, I remember this day because this is the first day that I actually went to a hospital as a doctor with my mom. Uh, it was shortly after I graduated med school and I went down to Regina for the first uh, the first year of my, my undergraduate training. And, and I remember my mom telling me over and over again, from the time that I was a kid to the time that I got into medicine, Alika, you have to do this for the family. We have to have someone that if something happened to us, we could talk to. And I didn't actually appreciate how deep that fear was until I actually went into later stages of my training and then became a staff and patients started sharing with me their, their lived experiences of what was actually happening to them. I, I was born and raised in Treaty 4 territory. I currently work with and play in the traditional territory of Treaty 8 and Métis Nation. Uh, I have a variety of different Indigenous ancestries. I'm Cree, Anishinaabe, Métis, and I have Pacific Islander ancestry as well. My mom comes from the island of Tonga. Uh, I've been involved in health transformation for a couple of decades. Um, one of the things that I, I know that we all have to do as Indigenous uh, providers and other leaders in this space is actually get into positions that are decision-making. So, you know, Senator Boyer is a great example of, of someone who has led an area and now is, is part of the Senate of Canada. And uh, I think it's contingent on all of us to think about how to go about doing this. So uh, I think the more that I hear about these things, I think I'm actually going to launch a run for the Canadian Medical Association president-elect uh, come January and hopefully get some of uh, our other Indigenous leadership into these, these decision-making uh, positions as well. Uh, I co-founded the Safe Space Networks Project with uh, a team of colleagues back in 2019, and these came out of a large transformation project called the Indigenous Health Alliance that ran for about five years. Uh, as Jocelyn was talking about, we've launched pilots in, in BC and Saskatchewan, and we're looking at expanding as we, we get more information about how, uh, how our structure is really helping. And I just like to spend a little bit of time talking about a process that patients intuitively know about, but maybe haven't thought through just because of uh, everything that's wrapped up in it, both emotionally and, and structurally. So if you have a concern or complaint, uh, this is how our reporting systems currently work. So health harm is very common. Uh, the World Health Organization estimates that up to 4 in 10 patients, so 40% of all encounters within hospital 
and uh, primary care systems actually cause harm to you. So you went to these places, you had additional harm happen to you. Uh, indigenous patients are likely harmed a lot more frequently. And so the question of whether or not you share this harm with the health system um, is a challenge for any patient. And I think in, in unpacking Joyce's experience, it became very clear that her, her family, her community, they didn't feel comfortable and they didn't feel safe sharing those concerns with the health system. And there's a lot of different reasons for it. Uh, but we know from international data that this isn't just something that Indigenous patients experience. This is all patients in the healthcare system. So as low as 3.6% of all people who experience harm, those four in 10, actually share what happened to them. And I think a big reason for this that came out of the uh, Alliance experience was that when people do share harm, they experience additional risk. You could damage your relationship with your provider. And especially if you're a disempowered patient who doesn't have a lot of choices on where they can go for care, you could actually lose access to your care. You know, I've seen it in remote communities where you know, locums get annoyed or upset with the community and they just quit going there. And so that, that's a really big risk for patients when they want to share what happened to them. This means that patients really shoulder the burden of change. So health systems in general don't really take patients at their word. You share a concern, the health system launches an investigation, but at no time are these systems designed to actually reassure you, tell you that what you're sharing is important, valued, and that they believe you. Uh, and those who harm often have a lot of resources to defend themselves and in, in effect uh, discredit you as you go through the reporting process. This means that patients really have to be in the mindset where they have to risk it all. You know, and uh, I'll underline risk it all because we've grown as Indigenous people to tolerate more and more harm with each subsequent experience of not having our, our concerns resolved. You know, to the point that someone can lose their ability to have a baby, someone can lose ability to have their kidneys working, they could die, all these other things, and still we're too afraid to share. And that's not on the shoulders of patients, that's on the shoulders of the health system that we've created that environment. Um, if you do proceed with an investigation, it usually ends up being very confidential and it's siloed. Every single experience is kind of divided from the other experiences that come in. These decision-making processes of how people actually figure out what happened uh, they're not openly shared, um, especially the persons who make the decisions. You often don't find those in the reports. And there's often a very narrow focus on exactly what you reported. So if they bring up other things in the course of the investigation, you don't always find out about those things. They only focus on the concern that you share. Uh, the final part of the experience is that punishment doesn't usually mean system change. You know, in, in the experience of Joyce in particular, uh, the persons who harmed that day were fired. But racism, as has been mentioned before, when it gets reported, it's never, ever the first time. You know, the racism has gotten bad enough that people feel like they have to say something. And so if we don't change the systems, we just create an environment where eventually someone else harms again. So what we've tried to do with the Safe Space Project is reorganize the way that this whole system works and put the hands back in the control of the patients. So the first part of it is that you can always share safely. So if the number one reason why people don't report is fear, you're always anonymous. Um, that's the way that the system is designed. You never lose that anonymity unless you make the decision to not be anonymous anymore. No one can force the system to tell them who you are or uh, where you came from. 
Uh, you also don't have to sign up initially. Uh, you can go to one of the website sponsors. So in BC, we have 26 friendship centers that have joined the project. Each of those websites has the capacity to collect your data and your experience. Uh, and the friendship centers will, will work with them so people can get more used to how to share uh, experiences in a safe way. Uh, we want to have people share again and again. So right now it's a very high threshold where people only share the most harmful experiences. We want people to get used to sharing every negative experience and eventually every positive experience as well. Uh, as you share more and more, uh, we, can, we can start to discover patterns in the way that you share. And those patterns are always anonymous. So even if you put your name into your story or you talk about things in a way that someone who's reading your story could figure out who you are, we actually edit those stories to ensure that anonymity is always maintained because we're really focused on the patterns and change, not shame and blame of individuals. The fourth part of the network is that we actually get insiders to weigh in on the patterns that come up. So uh, as Janet can, can attest to as well and other providers who uh, work in these health systems, um, like Edith and others, uh, we don't often feel comfortable sharing what we know is out there we see an incident of racism, it's very dangerous for us to actually share that with the system. And so we've created a way for healthcare insiders to actually look at these patterns and weigh in on whether or not they see the same things. And finally, you get to these, this uh, endpoint where you have validated patterns. So you have things that users share, these patterns that get developed, insiders then weigh in on them. And now that you have a validated pattern, you can actually use that information to make better choices about where you go for care. If you need your gallbladder taken out, who are some general surgeons who work in places that are less likely to be racialized than others? You know, how do you avoid having those negative experiences? These are the things that we want to get out for patients. And then we also want to share that same sort of data for healthcare systems so they can act to prevent harm in a way that, that doesn't target patients. So in a nutshell, that's what Safe Space Networks is. And I'll turn the time back over to Jocelyn. Thank you, um, Alika. And I think um, it's a really exciting uh, initiative. And of course, we've had conversations about how we can implement nationally. And there's been some comments um, on the uh, on the chat about how it's being implemented within BC. And, and so um, that's definitely one of our, our big asks. And um, so now I wanna come back to each of the panelists um, and just whoever has, has thoughts will, will, can just jump in. Um, but I just want to look at um, the, the, the so what factor. Like, what, where do we go from here? Like, we've in, you know, one hour, we've gone, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and so I want to leave the folks that are listening and, and watching online and the folks that will be watching later and in, in, in our report about what is it that we need to do? What is, what is the action piece? Um, and certainly from the NEFC's perspective, we have a few specific asks that we think will be, be helpful. Um, you know, it's already been mentioned that, yes, we need to address the system as a whole, but some of the harm reduction pieces that we can put in is just putting health navigators in friendship centers and other, other urban indigenous organizations as well. But of course, being the National Association of Friendship Centers, we think that it's like, you know, a very logical piece to have those health navigators, people who can, who know the systems, who can help people through, um, through that. 
um, and they don't necessarily have to be medically trained. They can come in and learn the systems on their own. And that way patients have somebody who's on their side who can help them navigate through that. Um, so we certainly would like to see um, some kind of national program um, funding health navigators uh, through friendship centers. Um, and kind of along with that is Jordan's principal workers. We know that a lot of times um, we have Indigenous children and their families who need access to safe and supportive healthcare. And, and sometimes it can be challenging to ensure that they have access. Um, and, and so I think the Jordan's principal program is something that um, would be really helpful for that. Um, we would love to um, roll out the safe space across the country, um, not just in BC and see how that goes, but um, I, I think that's a big ask for us is making sure that that initiative, um, which to me is a very simple you know, thing that we can do is just start tracking and mapping those instances. And from there, we can start making some really good policy decisions. Um, and then we've also asked uh, the government to work with us on advancing a national urban indigenous health framework so that we can start um, mapping and putting together the continuity of services and ensuring that there is some kind of base level um, across the board um, that we're coordinating with each other those services and supports and making sure that um, we aren't leaving people behind and there's a number to call and there's somebody if somebody's reaching out for help um, somebody will respond and, and there's somebody who's trained to do that um, so those are some of the big pieces that we see as, as the National Association of Friendship Centers that are sort of those quick um, and easy things to initiate um, as we're continually working on the systemic racism piece, which we have a part to play in that, but that's largely um, hospitals, governments, the healthcare system as a whole. There is even mention in the chat about, you know, ambulance services and, and nurses and uh, maternal health care and human resources. So what we're seeing is like everybody has a piece to play in this and it's not going to just be one organization or one person overall. So I want to go back to our panelists and maybe I'll start with Jennifer since we started with her um, to uh, to share with us what what do you think needs to be done? What are those action pieces? Um, what what is it going to take to really address um, the systemic and institutional racism um, in healthcare for Indigenous people, especially within the urban settings? That's a, it's a huge question and I think we have bits and parts that were presented today as an answer to it and I want to thank everybody for sharing too because uh you know as a director on the front lines i'm i'm a little bit in a bubble and it and it's it's amazing to see all the great work that's happening across the country pushing this issue forward and you know for for me one of the big things is that i need adequate resources to be able to respond to the needs on the ground and oftentimes when there's a huge event because this is a dramatic event that has high profile in the media and people are going to be focusing um you know on on the hospital and on on this particular event but when we're looking at a, at a health approach and i know from our perspective it's in a holistic approach so it incorporates more than just the physical health because we know that if somebody's not well emotionally they're not well and mentally then that also contributes to a um the health determinants of the individuals and we need to be able to make sure that like you did said our, our, our initiatives are supported uh, for longer than just a project. 
um, that we need to be able to invest in these services and invest in our resources um, to be able to make sure that we're responding to our community's needs from our own perspective and that we're listened to. I think it's a shame that it takes either thousands of Indigenous people speaking out for there to be action um, or that it has to be live streamed on Facebook before people pay attention. Uh, we need people to start listening when we say there's a problem. Um, like I said before, I, I knocked on their door. It was starting in June. I was trying to get their attention, saying that there's a huge mistrust between the community here and the health services. And um, still to this day, even after the death of Joyce, no one has contacted me from the CIS in the region. Um, to me, it's highly concerning that uh, I'm, I'm often told, well, it's a big machine. Big machines is not an excuse. There's people that are responsible. They need to be held accountable. Um, and I think that's a part of it. And I, in each and every, you know, proposal that gets brought forward brings us forward, but it, it, it shouldn't be this hard to move forward on things, something as basic as health, healthcare. Um, so I think for one is that, uh, you know, everybody within the government, everybody within uh, society needs to make this a priority and put pressure so that we're, we don't have to fight so hard just to advance small little projects that are going to have huge impacts. And we need a multifaceted different approaches to be able to respond to this. It's hundreds of years of colonization that we're working against and it needs that needs to be responded to in kind. And, um, you know, we have we have the story of Joyce at the hospital, but I have many different stories here that that I've heard just from my short time of being a director here and just experiences. We had a, a woman who broke her leg. She was in an isolated re region, single mother with three children. The ambulance shows up, decides not to take her to the hospital because she has her three kids. So we had a staff member that had to go and pick her up and bring her to the hospital because it was too many kids for them to, to deal with as an ambulance, you know? And it's, it's to me, it's such a shocking reality that like we're, we're left to our own devices until it's brought under the microscope uh, and through the media, which is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a real shame. And I'm hoping at least with, you know, people coming together and we seem to be mobilizing that we can keep the pressure on and that um, it, it's, not, uh, it's not something that's just like a, a story that's told and then when the next event comes up, it's being used as an example for someone else's story. That that's for me would be the most shameful thing to happen. So I'm I'm grateful that there's people that are uh, continuing to work on it, and I hope with this events like this, with different panelists that can talk about their experiences and share their expertise, and we can start to share best practices, that we're going to be able to really advance things. Miigwech. Miigwech, Jennifer. Um, Senator Boyer, do you want to add some of your thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, I just want to talk about a complete structural framework change 
for health care that is inclusive of Aboriginal and treaty rights that are protected by the Constitution of Canada. And I also want to add something that uh, uh, Dr. Smiley alluded to was our inherent rights as Indigenous people. Our inherent rights and our inherent laws is what needs to guide us as we go forward. And just as an example of that, uh, work that I had done as an academic was speaking to elders as I was, as I was proving an Aboriginal right to health that's, that is protected by Section 35 and defining exactly what that is and when the breach happens and who can we hold accountable and what are the fiduciary obligations of the government. So when I was exploring that, I was led off into the most wonderful uh, exploration of what inherent rights are. And uh, I was able to interview elders from across the country, and some of them were uh, like very elderly. And I asked them what they did to maintain good health as children and what they remember their grandparents doing. And as an example, there was several of them that had talked about eating muskrat and, and how the muskrat was it was good food, it was full of protein, it was clean, it lived in clean water, it ate clean food. And I heard this from wherever there were muskrats. And so afterwards, I'm thinking about everything that I had just been learning. And I'm thinking, we have codified laws. This is the law of the muskrat. These are inherent indigenous health rights that we all have, that it's the knowledge that's passed down and that we, we need to be exploring who we are as Indigenous people. And we need to be looking at a change, a whole structural change here. That's what I'm working on. Thank you. Awesome, and we're, we're here to help. <laughs> you know, it's it, like uh, people have been saying, it's gonna take multiple, multiple parties and having um, someone like you in the Senate, I think is really helpful um, to know that there is somebody with your you know, prestige and your stature and all of your experience there and, and working on this. It's, um, it's really, you know, it gives me hope. And, and sometimes, you know, in these situations, um, it can be hard to have some hope. And, and I, I believe that, uh, you know, with this and with others, um, that something's going to shift, like it has to, right? Um, Edith? Um, if you want to share some of your pieces around what you feel needs to be done to address some of these systemic and institutional racism in service. Oui, merci, Jocelyne. Yes, thank you, Jocelyn. I do echo to what Jocelyn has mentioned. Jocelyn has mentioned that to the necessity to implement a national framework, an urban framework of native health, urban Aboriginal health network. I had um, a talk with colleagues, a colleague of research, which is working with us since the beginning to document the Minoway Clinic. And we were saying in this uh, talk, we were coming back to the notion of relationship from nation to nation, which is part of the great dialogues, political dialogues. And an element which struck me in the talk we had was the relationship of nation from nation to nation must rest also on pillars of reconciliation and not just on pillars, political pillars, and a, a dialogue which uh, calls upon power. The reflection that we were having is this relationship from nation to nation I consider that it is at work 
for almost uh, 70 years now in the friendship center movement and this relationship by putting it at the core of collective action of the friendship centers the improvement of the quality of life of of natives of millions of natives in the urban settings um in towns and we can be very comfortable taking that posture of participant through the friendship centers of this relationship from nation to nation and I think that through this action of uh, friendship centers, we can transpose even more of this vision, and which is a modern one, uh, which is anchored in the contemporary life of persons. Uh, after this, could translate uh, could translate into national framework of um, indigenous health of um, native health. Merci, Janet, I know you have many recommendations. We'll, we'll maybe uh, keep it to just a couple minutes, but a good start anyway. Yeah, so everything everybody said so far. Um, and there's, there's three things I think about. Um, the first one is counting, right? So what's counted counts. Um, so a whole of government um, reframe so that we don't get discounted when for whatever reason we are in urban and related homelands okay because this is a huge problem right so um, the way that um, the settler system um, talks about evidence right it's about getting people the right health care um, at the right time in the right place right but the way the double standard the apartheid double standard that indigenous people get right um is this siloed care right so jordan's principle is a start right but there's a whole gap in terms of actually counting racist events right so then that can perpetuate the myth that it's only a bad apple versus like it's an exception when we get treated well Right, the census is only counting about one in four or one out of five urban First Nations Inuit Métis people, yet StatsCan keeps publishing things without saying that, right? So we need a reset. So one is counting. Two is accountabilities um, and standards and performance measures and evaluation around system level and attitudinal level racism anti-Indigenous racism in settler health systems. So that, um, yeah, I don't wanna um, steal um, from what Alika will say, but he had this wonderful idea that maybe he'll expand upon. Hospitals shouldn't be funded, right? Unless they can demonstrate that they're meeting the health needs of the Indigenous populations. It should just, it should stop at the funding, right? Every hospital should have a cultural safety plan, right? Um, every health professional training program should have an accredited stream, right? We need to actually be studying and evaluating cultural safety training where people feel good after, like usually is not effective. If it's been really pleasant, it's not effective, right? To address racism, we have to sit with our discomfort. Three, um, 
is just what Senator Boyer said, but to build on that idea, right? So to build on our own First Nations, Inuit and Métis models. Um, I was gifted with this beautiful idea around um, generative health services. So what if instead of being afraid that we're gonna get killed by racism, all of our health services actually were generative? There's a word in Cree that Madeline Dion Stout shared in Iskatastowin, right? Attachment through the ages where all people and things are connected, right? Muskrat healing law. So what if after we um, are going, like maybe we're out of balance and we're having an acute health problem, but in addition to getting my broken leg set versus just being deserted by the ambulance, right? I actually feel more attached to all people and all things. That's it. Thank you so much, Janet. And I know Alika said that he was going to cede his comments to Janet, but then you referenced him. So I just want to check with him if there is anything else that he wanted to make um, any points on that. And if not, we will continue. Um, so I, I really appreciate everybody, all the panelists that have came on. We're, we're out of time now. I just want to thank everyone who joined us. We had um, pretty close to 400 uh, participants and we had um, well over 300 joining throughout the whole thing and many, many more that said they wanted to be here and we'll be watching um, this afterwards um, and we'll be looking for, for the report. Um, so our next steps will be to kind of culminate everything that we've heard today, the things that have been shared with us um, on the chat. The questions were really good. We didn't get to all of them. Probably some of them I can honestly say I just didn't have an answer for um, about, you know, how do you, what are the real barriers to systemic change and how do we address it? Um, I think that's part of what we're trying to figure out, right? Um, I think we had some ideas today and um, we'll definitely carry those forward. Um, there's a couple of things, you know, just to mention that we really wanted that urban voice. And as we're going through the urban voice, you know, might not sound that much different than say a First Nations on reserve or in community or an Inuit um, in the North. Like there might be some um, specific things that they're dealing with um, in those communities, but that's the same what we're trying to say is for urban communities that um, the, the contexts are a bit different, the, the players are a bit different depending upon where you are. Um, and so we just wanna make sure that if there is any action plan nationally, federally, that we have to be very cognizant of what that urban perspective and that urban voice is in there because it's where the people are, it's where people have to be um, because those services aren't available in the community and until they are, um, people are going to still have to come to the city uh, for their appointments or to, to be here for long-term care um, for, for many reasons. So I think we have to really deal in realities um, and what's happening today as we build towards what we need for you know, our next generations. Um, I think uh, it was a really good reminder from, from Senator Boyd, like we are the rights holders as First Nations Métis Inuit and um, we have laws and we have rights and those don't go away just because we are living in an urban space. Um, and in fact, I would say it's even more important for us to assert those rights um, within those space, within urban spaces, um, because if we don't, they can be forgotten. 
um, or not considered within the broader framework. So I think it's really important to remember those lessons. Um, I just really want to give a thanks to um, the NEFC staff that helped to organize um, the event, um, pulled everything together. Um, Jimmy Gwetch, to all of the panelists who took time out of their weeks and, and days to, to share their knowledge and experience with us. Um, and again, to everybody who tuned in, um, really appreciate you, your interest and your, um, your comments all throughout. It's, it was quite incredible and an hour and a half went by like very, very quickly. Um, so now I would like to ask um, uh, NEFC Senator Ray Fox uh, to, to close our session. We were fortunate to have uh, Senator Dominic uh, open and um, we're very grateful that uh, we have such wonderful Senate members to also share their time um, and, and experience with us. Um, so Senator Ray Fox. There we are. I think I'm okay. You hearing me? Oh, one moment, Senator Ray. We, uh, for some reason, I am not able to unmute you. Okay. There you um, go. Okay, now I can hear you. Okay. And uh, it's just that I was just reminding you that that we would, uh, that I, I look forward to, to what comes. I have uh, myself got some experience in, uh, in the hospital. I was an ambulance operator for a few years. And uh, I also uh, work as a, as a chaplain for the local hospital here. And uh, I've observed and seen a lot of things, a lot of sad, sad things in, in my life. And uh, I just wanna encourage you people to don't stop and please uh, ask for help if you need it. We can do it. We can do something, you know. So I appreciate your time. You're muted again, Senator. I'm not sure why. Can't unmute. There we go. Perfect. Maybe they don't want me to speak. <laughs> Maybe it's going to be too long. Yeah. The older a guy gets, the longer his prayers. <laughs> but I would like to thank, thank you, Father, so that we may be united in a spirit of mutual respect and uh, exchange of ideas and goals not as individual entities, but as the community we strive to be in. Our discussions here today, let us not forget for whom we do this, our organization and our children and our grandchildren. Help us work together to be successful in our obligation and responsibilities. As always, we seek your guidance and inspiration in all our thoughts and decisions. Our Father, we pray that this meeting will be most productive and successful meeting. Father in heaven, bless us as we gather here today for this meeting. Guide our minds and hearts so that we will work for the good of our community and help your people. Teach us to be generous in our outlook, courageous in our face of difficulty and wise in your decisions. 
we ask this through goodness and wisdom. Hi. Thank you. Miigwech, everyone, um, and I hope you all have a wonderful weekend.